Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about packaging. We're talking about boxes. We're talking about all the ins and outs of the things that go outside your game, that your game goes into. We're talking to Adam Rayberg. He, he's an expert in this. Not only is he a game designer and a game publisher, he also works for a little, a little company called Target. You might have heard of them. They've got a few stores here and there. He is a packaging engineer with Target. And so I'm excited to talk to you, Adam. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Pumped to be here. Yeah, man. So... All right, let's let's get your bio real quick. In case people have never heard of you, you, you run your own publishing company and you design your own games. You got a lot of stuff going on. So kind of tell me who you are, how'd you get into game design, all that good stuff. Uh sure. Yeah. Um again, Adam of Adam's Apple Games and uh, you know, just a, a gamer like the rest of us, but had this idea, the seed that um I wanted to start my own business, wanted to uh design games as well. So those two things kind of hand in hand. Um, led me to the board game space. I had a uh, small foray into the digital game design space. That is really, really tough. And so um, I moved back into the board game space because it was a lot easier to get instantaneous feedback and make tweaks about things. And then just the physicality of it. Like that's, I think, what draws me to it because you can make something and it's physical and you can hold it. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of my, that's kind of my backstory in a, in a short snippet and want to keep, you know, launching into this space more because it, it's fun and exciting. Gotcha. Now, how did you get to working with Target and doing that whole packaging engineer thing? Yeah, uh, I so I'm actually not trained as a packaging engineer by schooling. Um, I went to school for chemical engineering, but they hire a lot of chemical engineers coming out of school as packaging engineers. There's a lot of tr- uh, crossover and knowledge transfer between the two different fields. And so uh, my, my first role was a packaging engineering company in Ohio. Second role, uh, moving and following my wife, uh, landed up at Target. And uh, it's been great experiencing that world because not only do you have to understand package design and structure, but you also have to understand things overseas because they import, they're like the second largest importer into the U S yeah. And so just, just real quick, anything I say is not uh, voicing, uh, you know, uh, an opinion or expression for target. It is Adam Rayberg. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, now what all goes into your job as an engineer? Are you actually doing the, the CAD or whatever program you use for designing things or what all does that entail? Yep. So we primarily handle the uh, the Target branded items, um, and we work in a program called Ardios CAD, which is a 2D design program. So it is making boxes, it is making hang tags, it is making um, sleeves or bands, uh, and, and kind of putting those together in a way that um, houses, enhances the product, and then also displays the graphics. And you know, in 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 in, in the world, like packaging is a is a super important thing because that's the first time that the customer touches you, the product. And so you really have this moment of truth that, uh, you know, you're holding this thing in your hand and it's coming to life for you. And so we try to, we, we, we really try to think about that, not, not only like that aesthetic, but also that, that feel and that, um, you know, that performance and the execution and that, like that moment of truth. Yeah, for sure. Cause you can tell when something feels cheap, right? And so if the box yeah, feels totally. cheap, you assume the game is going to be cheap. Like that is your, your first impression. And you know, the old school saying is, don't judge a book by its cover, 
but that's not reality. That's what people do. They see the cover of the book or the game and they judge it completely. And so I'm excited to kind of get talking about this because this is this is one of the most important aspects of a game, in my opinion. And it's not one that gets talked about a lot. But if you have a awesome game, because there have been a lot of games that are awesome, but the box looks terrible. You know, it, it, it doesn't hold up well. It gets crushed in shipping. And so even if the game is great, if you don't have a good box, you don't have a good aesthetic, good uh, component, you know, structure for the box, then your game's going to fall short. And so, and actually I kind of maybe just answered a little bit of my own question, but my next question is why is packaging so important, but yet people kind of put it on the back burner and don't think about it until maybe the end? Yeah, it's it's make or break, really. It's it's value perception. That That's really what it comes down to. You look at something on the shelf. You um, and, and by looking at it, that needs to get you to pick it up. Once you pick it up, that you know that product weight, that product feel, like that's kind of the second level. But it really just it it brings value to the table. You look at you know the big CPGs and, and they invest you know countless hours and millions of dollars into changing like a shampoo bottle. They'll take it from like a tall and thin bottle to a fat and wide, but like a short and wide bottle. And uh, they, they, they think about that and they product test that and they consumer test that. And like in the board game space, we're probably not quite that sophisticated. Maybe there are a few companies out there, but it's totally make or break. You, you really need to think of, a, you know, designing a product and not just the game. Yeah, it's a great point. Now, what does CPG stand for? Sorry, consumer packaged goods. So like your Nestle or your Procter & Gamble. Gotcha. So the, the brands you walk into the store and you see... That's, yep. Yeah. And now what, what you kind buy of, it a day to day basis. Yep. Yeah. Now, what kind of budget do you think those guys have? What kind of, and I don't know if you can tell me the numbers, <laughs> but what kind of budget does Target have for this kind of research? Uh, so, Target is a little bit unique in, in how that they're set up from a packaging uh, and design standpoint. They, they work with a lot of vendors and so they buy product. They're a retailer, they buy product and they sell product. They're buying it from a company like a Nestle, right? Like a, someone that actually produces the product and produces potentially pretty even produces the packaging. And so their target is kind of like one layer removed. And so when, it, when, when budget comes into play, it's usually me working at a, you know, a CAD computer design, whipping up some cool design or maybe some bland, bland design, depending on what's needed. Right. And then kind of farming it out to uh, the actual product vendor and the product vendor will then cost it and say, Hey, like, you're driving a ton of cost here or, Hey, that's a great idea. It's going to be really cost efficient. It's going to, you know, it fits the product really well. And, you know, it, and it demonstrates everything it needs to do. It, it does everything it needs to do. So the budget is actually kind of zero. Okay. Uh, and, and target really just leverages, you know, a product vendor that puts uh, all the time and effort into, into design and uh, evaluation and testing for that packaging. Gotcha. But at the same time, there's a ton of resources, even if the budget is zero, there's a ton of time and energy and people going into this stuff. Yeah. So I, and so then the interesting part is I've been on both sides of this coin. So I've actually worked for the the CPG as well in the packaging world, and uh, and the packaging budget that they have is you know it's it's certainly in the hundreds of thousands, and and they're doing things like heat mapping, looking where people um, are actually like their eyes are looking when they're looking at the product or the package. They're doing significant amounts of qualification and testing to make sure it's not going to be, get damaged in transportation, um, but then it's also going to be you know be able to be produced at very high speeds and automation. And like, it kind of depends also on how re revolutionary the thing is. Is it, has it, is it a box that's been made in the past or is it some sort of a revolutionary design that, you know, is really cutting edge and leading? Yeah. And that's another great point. I've, I've talked to some designers and they say, oh, I've got this great idea for this new component or new box and it's going to be totally new. And it's like, be careful with that because that means it's going to be more expensive. <laughs> and so well, talk to me about that. 
I, so I would say I would, I'd offer myself as a resource. Like if people got crazy ideas, like like feel free to you know shoot them over and see if it's manufacturable because, um, and and obviously use your use your you know use your manufacturer as well. But but I've seen a lot of it and you know can pretty quickly evaluate. You know, and, and walk through the packaging facilities over uh, overseas, and so we can pretty quickly put a, a a visual as to how that how this idea might actually come to life in the packaging world. And so, you know, it, it's a risk, right? Like you go in there and you're like, hey, we want to do this crazy cool thing, and if you haven't if you haven't asked your manufacturer if, if they can actually manufacture it, you might be driving a ton of cost or hand assembly work um, on. You know, on the ground uh, in China, or potentially if you're producing domestically, like like your packaging costs are even going to skyrocket even more. Right, and typically the box is the most expensive component anyway of of all the components in the game, and so it it could be something that messes up your budget if you don't really plan ahead. And and that's something I want to talk about in just a minute, as far as like when to start. But first of all, let's just talk about the big picture. I want to get into some of the details in a little bit, but right now, just give me the big picture, the main things people need to understand or be aware of when it comes to packaging and boxes and that good stuff. Yeah. So so I think the main things that people need to understand. Let's see. So like like usually like like if you're going to work with a, a, a you know a product vendor like 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 a a game manufacturer overseas, they're going to set you up with like a template and you're going to design that template. And so there is, there is a, there's a, you know, kind of a, a standardized approach to the gaming industry. Now, if you want to do something a little bit outside the box, that's where things get a little bit more differentiated or risky. A few things you need to think about, like, I mean, graphics, right? So put the graphics on the box, the side of the box, right? You're going to want to make sure that your, your game name is on the side of the box. So copying content is a big piece of it. Structure is another big piece of it. You probably don't need to think about structure too much, but the, the manufacturer will ask you things like, oh, hey, what, what thickness do you want for the box? You know, if you're shipping overseas or if you're shipping um, like sent from China, for, for instance, you might want to think about a slightly thicker box or, you know, a way to protect it in that shipment. So I think, uh, you know, branding and uh, protection are the two big things to think about when you think about packaging design. Gotcha. And so in that case, when should I really begin this process? Like when should I start really uh, trying to be aware of what I, what needs to go into the box? Well, uh, I often, I often like to have a box when I am sending out prototypes because, you know, a, a prototype, uh, you know, like a picture is a thousand words, like, like a, a prototype is a thousand pictures kind of thing. <laughs> and, and so I, I think you should, you should start sketching it out. Like, like, okay, how big do I want the box to be? What kind of a weight and size a game is going to be? I think, Size is the first thing you're going to start to think about, and I, I think then the second, like the second layer, is once you have a better idea of what components are going in your box, now you need to start to think about, you know, how are they going to fit in the box, and uh, you know, are my punch boards going to be punched or are they going to come, um, you know, unpunched, and am I going to have an insert, and how much void space is there going to be, stuff like that. So I think it, I think the two steps are uh, first off like kind of kind of like the size and the value perception that you're going for. Is this game a fifty dollar game? Is this game a ten dollar game? Mm. Second thing is now I have my components, and so I'm drilling down into the details of that value perception, that size. Now that I picked. All right. In the same token, when should I start thinking about like the material choice? We talked about the thickness and all that. First of all, what kind of material choices do I even have? And then yeah. and tell me more about that. That's a great question. Okay, so in the board game space, right, like we see uh, pretty much, they're, they're called setup boxes. So it's a rigid setup box. They use chipboard. Um, they, they die cut it in kind of like a, a square attached to four different rectangles with creases on it. And then they wrap it with a printed branded piece of paper. 
that comes together, fits really tight, and then two of those make a box. Um, but that that is kind of like the proven way to make a board game. There are other things that are starting to to um, come into the industry. So we have like tins, and I think I think it's Game Right that does um, a really good job leveraging tins. Mm-hmm. Um, you see some of these uh, blisters they're called, and so a blister package is essentially like a clear uh, clamshell that maybe has a little bit of a printed insert inside of it, but but you'll see a game like, I don't know, maybe like a zombie dice have something like that. Um, and so each different, you know, package has a different value perception. You can get really, really high-end, and, and, and like you probably won't see this on a Target, but like you'll start to see like a wooden box or potentially a glass package. Um, and so I, I love it, love it, love it, love it when people start to get creative on material. And I think there's a lot of room to run and room to explore in the board game space with material creativity. Yeah, definitely. I've seen so many games recently come out and look like books that you put on your shelf. Uh, there's been so many games that have like magnets to kind of close the game. And even where the box becomes a component in the game and it uses the magnets to kind of, as it opens, it becomes you know something you use for the game. So there's a lot of space to explore some really uh, interesting things. Do you have any advice, though, as far as when someone's really thinking through a material choice? Uh, like what would you what would you tell them? Anything to be aware of or think about? Yeah, I, I think you know you know when it comes to material choice, like like if you're if you're if you're doing something really unique, like like especially like an abstract or like a you know if you really want to have that package become your brand, think unique. If you feel like that is not worth it for your game, like you're going after like a a, a euro or something like that, where the packaging does not need to be your brand, then just I mean, do go go for the proven, um, you know, go go the proven route. So I mean, like you you look at like the Jenga or the Bananagrams or the you know I don't know some of those unique uh, more identifiable packaging choices that these mass game brands have used. They've built a whole brand out of their package, right? And that that I think is is something to think about. So it's it's game weight. It's how much branding do you really want to attach to this packaging and. I mean, it can be a really huge play if you can if you can make that work for you. Like you can really, really differentiate yourself on the shelf. But it's also a risk because because the risk is, hey, is that a board game or is that a toy or something else? Right. That's a good point. But I think you bring up a great point. Don't do something for the sake of doing it. Like make sure you're really being strategic in why you're going to use that weird box or the weird uh, components or material choices or whatever. Don't just do it because it's cool. Like do it because you're really thinking strategically, right? Now, as far as material choices, what what are there, what are the things to think about when it comes to colors? Right? Do certain uh, materials show colors better than others, or certain mm. thicknesses absorb the? Uh, you know, like help help me understand. I don't have a you know any experience in the whole packaging yeah. and material stuff. So, like, help me understand as far as colors and and what all is involved there. So, two two the uh, the first conversation that's typically had, um, and and maybe not so much in the boarding space, but in, in a product design space, is like, are we going to use a spot color or are we going to use process colors? And so, what that means is like, the Coca Cola red. Do you need to hit the Coca Cola red? Is that part of your brand? Are you putting a ton of emphasis into making this your red, or are you cool building that red out of a mixture of cyan, magenta, uh, yellow, and black? And so that that's process colors. So that's the first piece of it. 99.9% of board games probably go down the process color route. And that just makes a lot of sense. It's so flexible. You don't need to um, prescribe a color. Uh, the second piece of information is probably the finishing, actually. So when you finish uh, a print job, you are asked, like, hey, what kind of coding am I going to put on this print? And so your options are essentially 
like a, a mat or a gloss, or sometimes board games will go one step further and go into kind of the UV. Now, some of the other uh, product uh, or packaging that you'll see on the market will have like a soft touch or a scratch and sniff kind of coating on it, stuff like that. It gets really out there, but like a decision that you need to make when you're looking at matte versus gloss versus UV, I think is, is a cost decision, but it's also like, what is the importance of the graphic design that you're bringing to the table? Now, I will say that one of the biggest misconceptions of UV, and people like to throw UV around as a Kickstarter stretch bonus or whatever, is that it's 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 typically used incorrectly. Okay. Uh, and, and it's used not, not just in the board game space, but across the board. And so the way that uh, UV uh, works the best, in my opinion, is is when it is not used on one color that borders another color and it stops so it so it's like you know it, it, think of a circle if the circle is filled in with uv and everything around the circle is not filled in with uv like your your the color change already is giving you that graphic like like that differentiation now you're slightly amplifying it with a little bit of extra gloss how it's best used, in my opinion, is by if you would actually put some some sort of a texture or some sort of a um, you know a pattern onto a solid, that is going to then refract a different amount of light based on that color, and now it's going to look so much cooler. It's going to give it depth. It's going to give it character, flavor, and a lot of times that like that first application, like like it's on the circle and then the white around the circle or whatever, it doesn't have UV. Like that just gets lost and people don't even know it's there. But if it's on the solid and it's at, like you, like let's say it's just a, a solid black box. And the only thing you print on there is like the title in UV, no, no extra color. And, and like the, 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 like the design in UV, like that, something like that is actually going to pop really well. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, when you have different um, um, print techniques and finishing techniques that you can do a lot of, you know, different things to really make them shine. Yeah, that's awesome. Now talk to me a little bit about like foil, because I've seen, you know, some boxes mm. have like the foil finish. Tell me about that. What's different all that. Yeah, a few different applications for foil. Um, a lot of times you'll see them on a sleeve, um, but sometimes you'll see them uh, integrated into a box design. And so foil, let's see, like like there are two kind of ways that you can get like a foil aesthetic. Um, the first way is you can actually use a, a printed style. And so what they're doing here is they're actually um, like they're using like a metallic ink. Actually, sorry, there's three ways you can do it. First way is a metallic ink, all right? Metallic ink is going to be the least foily uh, looking thing. It's going to have the least shimmer, the least shine. The second thing you can do is you can laminate a like, like a metallized PET board. So this is like foil particles uh, that is are vacuum sucked onto this this board. So like it's, it is the substrate. The foil is the substrate. Now if you print on that, that's really going to shine and really going to have a lot of you know shimmer and gloss. Um, the third thing you can do is use some something that's called a foil stamp. And a foil stamp is a spot application. That is either like um, stamped on one time or essentially like glued on and then ripped off. So there's a few different ways you can apply a foil stamp, but the foil stamp will actually give you the most foil aesthetic. And that I think you have a lot, a lot more limitation when it comes to like foil coloring. So the first two give you a little more ability to choose a color that you want on the foil. And then that last one, that foil stamping is just going to be like your... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example, like like some sort of a chocolate candy, right? Like yeah. that, you know, you have foil on a chocolate candy. Gotcha. Now, what are the cost implications of these different finishes? You know, gloss Ooh. versus matte versus UV <laughs> foil. Like, you don't have to give me specific numbers. Just kind of give yeah. me some kind of idea, like a range kind of thing. Yeah, you're probably okay. So, so like uh, matte or gloss varnish, like pretty comparable, like zero zero percent increase. 
you go to a UV um, varnish, you're probably in the, I don't know, like 20% increase ballpark. You go to foil, some sort of a foil application like metallic inks, you're probably in the 30 to 50%. And if you go to some, some something like a foil stamp or a foil substrate, you're probably 50 to, or 150, like 200% kind oh, of thing. Wow. So it scales pretty high. Um, and that's why a lot of times you'll see these foil um, applications on a sleeve so that they can do it in a more cost-effective manner. Gotcha. Now, is it just a labor cost or is it a cost of materials? What what drives that cost percentage so so far up when you when you get down the line? It's it's totally materials, yeah, totally materials. Oh, cool, man. All right, so let's talk about the size of a box. How does that play into the design of it? You know, you, certain things you have to think about. You know, if you've got like a really long, thin box versus a, a short, you know, thicker box versus. And then thinking about, you know, the shipping of it, because you don't want a box that crushes in the middle because the, the corners are strong, but the middle is not. So, like, tell me how, like, what do you do when you're designing packages for Target and the, the box sizes and all that? And give me some good advice as far as, like, what game designers or game publishers should be doing. Sure. So, uh, we, we have a little bit of an advantage, um, you know, in, in the Target world because they, sh- they ship, a, like, a crap ton of stuff, right? So, I, I don't need to think about size in terms of, um, will it fit in this post mailer? Mm. I think a lot of you know a lot of creators these days are, especially on a crowdfunding uh, site, are thinking like, hey, how do I meet the best shipping right. costs? And so that that's a big primary input. So let's take that out, take take that off the book a little bit. The other thing I'm thinking about is like, what's the structure of the box? So yeah, if it's really long and thin, the longest edge is going to be your weakest point. And so, um, I mean is the material strong enough to basically support like what, what is happening inside the box. And so a heavier item in the box is also going to add more, um, you know, add more, uh, I guess, damage potential or pressure on or force on the box as well. So, yeah, I mean, board games are pretty like, to be perfectly honest though, like board games are pretty, uh, pretty robust. So like one of the most robust things I actually have seen them shipped without any, uh, corrugated cartons domestically. So like the, the Hasbro's a lot of times won't won't put a carton on their box. They'll just shrink four boxes together and call that their case pack. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing that they can get these bricks of board games, you know, to ship in w- without any damage. But um, I guess it's it's just kind of the nature of the business, right? They ship so much volume, they can uh, assume that it's all going to be together. Coming from overseas, it's a little bit different. You should put a box on it. You should put a probably a double wall corrugated box on it um, because. Your box is going to be mixed in with other people's stuff in a seat container, most likely, and so you don't want someone someone else's like uh, patio grill or something to fall on this one box and get just completely crushed. Right now, going back to the going to the crushed idea, how yeah. do you how do you design a box that the corners hold up? Because that's one of the main things that gets messed up on a box is the corners get screwed up. So, what are some tips or tricks on how to keep that from happening? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, box size is the biggest thing you can do. So a smaller box is a stronger box. Um, that that is a, that, that's a trend that will always hold true. Also, material thickness is, is something you can do. So if you're designing uh, like a two millimeter chipboard box, uh, at a small to mid sized box, the thing's gonna be a tank. But if it's like an oversized, you know, like a like a Gloomhaven size box, and you have like 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 one and a half to two mil two millimeters chipboard, you're gonna be in trouble. So I mean. Big, the bigger the box goes, the more it need, the more structure it needs to be able to hold up its its uh, edges and and not bow and 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 also protect um, you know corners as well. Now, one thing I will say um, that on a recent shipment from Sen from China, I sent a bunch of my inventory over uh, back to the U.S. Not super cost effective, but I had to do it, and uh, they sent it with these corner these plastic. Um, 
corner protectors on each corner. So there was eight corner protectors and, and it was like wrapped with um, tape around that as well. So I was, you know, I, I was bringing these thing out at, at a local con and I'm just kind of joking with uh, talking shop with some buds. And I was like, Hey, this is the, uh, the, the game was truck off. Uh, and, and was like, Hey, this is the, the, the tank edition. So feel free to throw it around the room. You know, <laughs> it was, it was strong. It was pretty amazing. So yeah. you can always ask for something like that, like a, uh, a separate application attached to the actual box to be able to increase the strength of it. Right. Now I assume cost goes up a little bit when they do that too though, right? Yeah, but it wasn't too bad. I mean, okay. I think it was less than like less less than thirty cents per per unit. And when you're shipping, you know, internationally and it's gonna cost you a, like like a, a lot of money to satisfy a, a customer that has a damaged product, like might as well just get it right the first time. Yeah, that's a great point. It's better to spend a little bit of money on the front end as opposed to a whole yep. bunch of money on the back end. That's that's and that's idea. how you create loyalty too. Yeah. I mean, when 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 your customers see that you have shipped, um, you've taken you know care uh, in, into protecting something from getting damaged, like they're going to be more likely to um, you know to buy from you again. Yeah, definitely. Now, what have you learned as far as the psychological aspect of things when someone picks up that box, the size of it, the you know how it feels, all that. What have you, do you, is that something you guys talk about at Target or is there something you've learned just in the industry? Yeah, totally. Um, there, there's a few, a few really good case studies on the psychology of, of packaging. You know, one go, one comes with like pre, uh, price perception. And so typically like the taller and thinner an item is, the more it is perceived as valuable, Okay. which is, which is really interesting. And and it's tough to make that comparison to the board game space, but like when you look at a game like an Onitama, or actually um, the first game that I had released called Bruin USA, I went I went for a really unique box uh, size and style, and and it was very polarizing to the board game market. And so, like, I mean, w- when you're making changes in the board game space, something that I would recommend is that you know you have uh, some good cons- uh, customer testing and, and and expectations set and awareness set about what you're doing with the packaging because if it doesn't fit in someone's board game shelf, like, like there's a lot of, you know, um, storage and uh, needs that a consumer needs to have. So then the second perception thing uh, that, that I found with, with packaging uh, really is like, and this is more coming from the, the target side of things is like, you can design a package that customers learn to love and trust. So they'll actually love the package, which is absurd. But like, like the, the, the core example that I always give is like the Keurig K-Cup. Super wasteful design, um, not super sustainable. I think they've improved along along the way, but like, man, when that thing came out, like there was something about it. It was so different and so unique, and like these little K, you know, these little mm-hmm. K cups or whatever. People loved it, right? So it, was, it just it, it can build brand love. Yeah, for sure. Now, tell me a little bit about space inside of a box because I feel like there's a a balance you're trying to find between because you don't want the box to be overflowing where where somebody can't ever get the game to fit back into the box right and it closes. But at the same time, you don't want to have too much space because that could leave it open to to be crushed. It's easier for it to be crushed in shipping. So tell me about the balance of finding the the right amount of space or extra space in a box. Sure. So we call this void space in the industry. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention before was actually. On the shelf, on the retail shelf, if your game is going to retail, it's got to, excuse me, it's got to stand up on shelf, and so it needs to be deep enough so that it's not going to topple over. Oh, that's a good. Point. Um, so void space plays into that a little bit. So void space is one way that you can, it's a tool that you can use to create a bigger brand uh, display panel for your game, right? Like the Carcassonne box that you buy. Once you punch out all those pieces, it fits in like one fourth or one eighth the box. It's in like a little Ziploc bag for a sandwich is what it fits into. And (laughs) and some games are bigger offenders than others. And so that's the consumer perception. 
So that's the balance that you are weighing. You're weighing, okay, how do I make this thing stand out on shelf? But then how do I mitigate that, um, that poor consumer perception that comes along with, hey, like I punched this thing out and it's tiny. Like, why did I buy this giant box? Yeah. You know, why was this a $40 price point when it fits in my pocket? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, my, my kind of design thesis from a board game standpoint, and this is, I think this is against the grain for the most part, is to be as efficient, uh, space, void space efficient as possible. What that does is two things. It limits cost uh, of the box and cost to like like a you know to, to the consumer because you can keep your cost down. You can keep the retail price down. Uh, another thing it does is it keeps games compact and so it doesn't fill up a, a, someone's shelf really fast. You know, so like if if they are a fan of Adam's Apple Games, they can fit a bunch of my games on the shelf versus like some other publisher. Um, I, I don't think everyone recognizes that as like the the um, the best practice, but I think it's a practice that is, it's very cost effective. It's very sustainable. And, you know, it, it I, th- I think it, it's um, truly evaluating, you know, like what, I guess, what is being sold to the customer, right? Yeah, definitely. Anything so. to think about as far as the shipping, if, if you have too much void space, because, you know, some people, they'll put like the insert in there and that kind of like keeps the top from getting crushed down into the bottom or whatever. Any Anything to think about as far as that goes? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of void space, when you ship it, when you ship something, you, you should have like less than an eighth inch of um, like movement side to side, and so an insert will help minimize like the the shaking, the back back and forth shaking, or like the um, rub and scuff damage inside the box. You can eliminate the void space by making the box smaller, and that will help it. But then you can also like prop it up with an insert, and that will um, help prevent that um, damage as well. Gotcha. Now let's talk about something, and I don't even know if this is actually a topic. This is just something I was thinking about coming up with some ideas for the show. Is there any sure. difference in shrink wrap or any you know, the plastic that goes around the box? Any differences in those materials or things to think about? There, there is not much of a difference. Okay. Like, like one thing I will say that you know I've, I've seen, I've read and seen is that the way that the shrink wrap is applied can um, impact how it stands on shelf, and so that's something to keep keep in mind if, if you are going to be at retail. You want to make sure that your shrink wrap doesn't have, um, you know, like a really large budding seam on the bottom because that's going to be more likely to fall over. And you can actually get a shrink sleeve, which is different than shrink wrap. You can actually get a, a printed shrink sleeve if you want as well. And so you could actually put a completely different branded aesthetic on a shrink sleeve and, and you know, something like a Coke bottle like has that or like an energy drink these days. Gotcha. Okay, so just the, the little plastic that goes around, you know, the plastic logo and the, the ingredients and all that stuff that goes around a Coke bottle, you can do the same thing to a board game. You totally can do the same thing to a board game, yeah. But nothing nothing crazy. Shrink is like, you know, it's it's pretty simple. You're like, hey, let's put shrink wrap on it. Um, and make sure your manufacturer does it too because that is the, um, that, that is the, going, like the, the best practice in, in the industry, right? Yeah, gotcha. All right, so let's talk about some of the market differences. You, you've worked with U.S.-based stuff. You've worked with overseas and Chinese-based stuff. Tell me some of the differences that people need to be aware of when they're putting their box together or, or contacting companies and that kind of thing. Sure. I mean, from a market standpoint, cost is the, cost is the biggest one that jumps in my mind is that domestically, like uh, – you're like if you want to hit the same cost, you're gonna to have to you know go five x on the production quantity. Overseas, um, they can do it a lot more cost effectively. They can also do some of the contract or hand packing operations, like a punching a board for you, a lot more cost effectively. So some of those assembly type operations become a little more cost effective overseas. From a material standpoint, uh, one thing I have noticed is that let's see, whiteness is a lot brighter. 
and lighter in the in you know domestic production versus overseas and so you might actually have a different a little bit of a color shift if you if you were to shift manufacturing locations like you know when you had a game and you manufactured overseas and you, and you brought it to the US or domestically or even Europe you'd probably see a shift in whiteness let's see the other thing i would talk about a little bit is chipboard density and so uh, the fiber in general uh, fibers so paper is made out of fiber um, fiber length is what drives material properties in paper, paperboard, chipboard. The lamination steps that they have in place in China tend to create a more rigid chipboard uh, compared to the U.S. That's just something I've noticed over time being being in the industry. And so things tend to be a little bit stronger, actually, if it's coming from China for, uh, in the chipboard sense. If you translate that to paperboard, like uh, like a sleeve or something like that, or cards, it actually tends to be better fidelity, better quality in the U.S., but just slightly, just slightly. Cool. All right, let's go, same kind of thing, talking about overseas versus domestic stuff. Let's talk about mold. Let's talk about humidity, like how those things can play a factor in your box and in your components and whether or not your game molds. Like, tell me, first of all, tell me how that happens, and then tell me what a publisher or designer needs to be aware of to make sure it doesn't. Sure. Um, th this is a really interesting question. So, and, and to answer it, I think I kind of have to step back a little bit. So, so domestically, we have a lot of um, restrictions and regulations around a packaging production facility or a game production facility. Like, they're for the most part, you're going to have a pretty set, a pretty uh, a pretty standardized um, set of you know quality and humidity and temperature regulation inside the facility. Things are pretty up to snuff. Safety standards, all that. Now, you translate that, and you know you're, you're touring something overseas. And overseas, you uh, are producing a lot of times in an open air factory. And so you can imagine the, the, the humidity and temperature in South China is super humid, right? And so a good board game manufacturer overseas has a process in place to control humidity, a process like to dehumidify boxes after they've been printed um, and, and before they're stretch wrapped uh, or shrink wrapped. And so make sure that your manufacturer has a process in place. Usually it takes about two weeks in a kind of a climate controlled uh, location overseas to actually get it to a point where it's not going to mold. That's how it can happen. And it can happen to any component, really. Paper and wood components are the most susceptible to mold uh, overseas. But really, like if, if you are not placing your stuff in a climate controlled area, it's going to happen. Yeah. And it, does it happen like on the boat as it comes over? Does it just kind of mold in the shipping? Yeah, it, it essentially, yeah. I mean, we, we've done some tracking studies with Target and in the pack packaging industry in general, and um, temperatures on a shipping, uh, on a sea container can range from, I don't know, like, it can get as high as like 150, 160 degrees wow. Fahrenheit. Um, so it's pretty dang hot, potentially, yeah. on that shipping container. It depends what time of the year uh, you're shipping things, but it just, you know, it's like a, it's like a sauna in there. And, uh, yeah, it, it's tough to, it's tough to be mold resistant, you know, when, when you're in that type of an atmosphere. Also, if your shrink wrap, um, is, is not cl completely closed, like you are going to be saturating your product with potential moisture. So make sure that the shrink wrap goes all the way around. It doesn't have openings on the top and the bottom. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's talk about box sleeves. This is something I saw pop up on one of the Facebook groups <laughs> recently where people were kind of debating the pros and cons of box sleeves. And some people say, oh, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of time, whatever. What are your thoughts on box sleeves? What are the pros and cons? Yeah. You know, it, there's no, there's no real structural pro here. Um, but from a graphics and aesthetic standpoint, like you can, you can really set the tone with box sleeves. And so if you're trying to um, connotate premium 
then a box sleeve is a way to do that. And I kind of mentioned earlier that you can, um, for a lower cost, you can uh, apply some different techniques, some different finishes to that box sleeve um, and still have that game, you know, carry carry that branding across and then, you know, it doesn't have to impact the, the price of the box. So that's really that's really what they're for. I, I mean, I haven't yet yet seen a box sleeve that has provided a lot of like form and function or feature and function. It's really aesthetics. Now, I will say that if you go into the packaging and product industry, um, sleeves uh, are used pretty often to um, provide um, some awesome branding moments. And so you'll see like the laser cut, you know, super tiny little etched laser um, cut sleeves that it, it kind of looks like lace. And then you pull it off, and it, it just it's, it feels so premium. So it, it really depends on the product, but yeah, it's an interesting question. I saw that one on the uh, on a Facebook group recently too, and I had to chuckle myself. Yeah, I, I like it. I like the idea of having a premium version of a game you know, that has all these premium components, premium stuff inside, and then having a really cool box sleeve to make make it different. You know, so if someone were to go to your house and see that version of the game, they oh oh you got the premium version. They could just tell yeah. based on the outside, based on the sleeve. Another thing is Victory Point games. I don't think they do this now, but back in the day, all of their boxes were the exact same for every game they had. Every box was the same. It was the same size. It had the Victory Points logo on the outside. It was just a red box with, with Victory Point games on it. And then based on the game, they would just put a different sleeve. So every box for every game was the same, but the sleeve would be different. And that was one way that they cut costs. And so That's a cool idea. Yeah. And so kind of give me your, your ideas about that. Is that is that a way? I don't know if it's it's a viable way to do things now, but just what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, what they were doing is they were managing a product portfolio, and they're saying that, hey, we're we're going to only design games that fit into this box or these two box sizes or whatever. And they really had the long-term cost planned out, you know. And that, that that's, that's pretty cool to, to see a, a board game company that, I mean, because our industry is going so fast, right? Like, games are coming out every year, every, you know, like, publishers are doing multiple games every year. And so to be able to have that type of foresight, I think, is pretty amazing. I don't think it fits a lot of models because a smaller publisher, good luck with that. But, I mean, a bigger publisher, you know, you, you have more of a set uh, product production schedule. Sure, go for it. Yeah, with them, they were domestic. And so they were, and they were, I think, put on demand. They had the, all the equipment and, and different things they needed. So when somebody ordered a game, they would print it in their shop. They would you know, put the game in the, their components in the box, slide the right sleeve on, and send it out the door. And so it was a way for them to cut a tremendous amount of costs because you didn't, you didn't have to have boxes for 10 different games. You just have one sure. box, and you have a whole bunch of sleeves, and sleeves don't take up near as much room. And so that was a giant print run of the box too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just an interesting model. And they're, they're not doing any more. And so obviously it wasn't the best model that they decided on, but it's just a, a interesting way to, to do things. Now let's talk about kind of the opposite of all of this. When is it a good idea to not have a box, to not worry about having a box for your game? I think if, if your game has components that are going to be very, like very strong and structural. Um, so I'm thinking kind of like a Quirkle or um, a Scrabble type thing or a Bananagrams where, where like maybe you have wooden components or plastic components now you, you potentially can get away from that product protection need of a box. Now, when is it a good wait, uh, a good time to think about that? I, and I think it really comes down to, are you trying to create a branding moment um, and, and a loyalty moment around a unique form or feature on the shelf? So like that bananagrams, I keep coming back to this, but like that jumps out to the consumer and says, I'm going to remember this one. It's got a title that matches the packaging form and it's unique. 
Gotcha. And so it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you have a strategic reason for not having a, a box, uh, and I guess where do, where do CCGs fall into this? Like Magic the Gathering. I mean, you don't really buy boxes for that. You buy the little packs. And so like, where does that fall in the spectrum of all this? Yeah. Um, so I'd call that, I, I mean, it fits in, in the box and wrapper category. So that, so they probably send um, a case pack of multiple boxes of cards. Each box is filled with, let's say, like 50 or 60 wrappers. You know, I have 10 or 10, 10 to 15 cards in there. Where does it fit within the side, within the spectrum of this? I think it's pretty different. And, and the packaging, uh, the, the actual packaging um, uh, machines to do that uh, are quite a bit different. So I, in the realm of this, like, like it, it's, it's a pretty big departure. And I would definitely, if you're going down that route, ask your manufacturer if they can do it. If not, they're going to find and outsource it somewhere else um, to someone that, that can. But yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting model, right? Like it's almost like the microtransaction model of yeah. board games, the right. board game space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd, I'd say the majority of game shops make their living $3 booster packs at a time, you know, with just people buying those, those packs over and over and over again, which just yeah. it's amazing. The, the, the finances and the economics of, of magic booster packs and the gaming industry. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that we haven't seen um, like, you know, cause kind of like micro games were, were a big thing. Mm-hmm. And so some of the micro games have, have really, I think floated to the top because of packaging. Right. So the one that I would think about is like the, the tin mint, uh, micro game where that they kind of created a branding around that whole tin mint idea and I, I don't know if they were the first one to think of that tin mint as a packaging format for their game but man that's a cool that's a cool story right it just it just works in your head you're like oh that's cool i know what a tin mint is and there's game in there and I, oh it's great yeah definitely and again it goes back into that was strategic you know that wasn't just yeah. hey this is for the sake of it and like no it's all makes sense and it, it like you said it tells a good story now any other best practices that you can think of that we haven't really talked about any other things that people need to be aware of. Yeah. Um, one of the best practices that I would shout, shout out is itemized, uh, costing. So you can really, um, break down a quote into what is driving the cost of your, your, your game. And essentially like a game board game is it's almost all packaging materials. Plus like maybe some wooden meatballs, right. Or some minis. Um, but really like, Make sure you have those quotes itemized so that you can understand and, and better educate yourself as to what is driving costs. Now, when you go to another uh, manufacturer and you're, and you're quoting, you know, you're, you're sending the quote to multiple different manufacturers, you, you can make uh, really easy comparisons to say, same box size, two different manufacturers, one's twice as expensive as the other. That seems fishy. What's going on here? Yeah. So you can really ask um, educated questions about and really kind of cut the cut the fat from your costing. Awesome. Any any kind of closing advice for somebody who has a publishing company or is looking into doing their own Kickstarter? What advice would you tell them as far as packaging and boxes? Think outside the box. That's <laughs> what I would say. Yeah. You know, don't be afraid to push the push the envelope a little bit. And if you uh, want uh, feedback or a partner or you know like a brainstorm partner uh, along the way, don't feel uh, don't be afraid to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to to talk about that kind of stuff. And I just geek out. I nerd out on, on packaging design. So let me yeah. know. Awesome. Now, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at Adams Apple Games on Twitter, www.adamsapplegames.com as well. And yeah, that's about it. Awesome. I'll put those links in the show notes. Now, Adam, you've got a very interesting game. It's a super interesting 3D kind of cool game you got going on. Tell me about tell me about Swordcrafters. Yeah, Swordcrafters is a uh, two to five player, thirty minute board game where you are literally building and crafting a three dimensional sword. Through the gameplay, you uh, cut tiles in a grid, 
you um, make a cut and then you make a selection. So it's kind of like an iCut, you choose a mechanic. And then once you have those tiles, then you um, slot them together in a three-dimensional sword hilt. And uh, th this is, I think, a really, really unique experience for a gamer to be able to hold the sword while you're playing it. And what's really, really cool, in my opinion, is that it really ticks some of those like Minecraft boxes because you have to now understand the, the set collection mechanics and kind of uh, uh, spatial and patterning mechanics that come together now with this 3D game design. So 3D, game, 3D sword in your hand, right? So you're kind of slotting gems in and, uh, and sword tiles into your sword and you're trying to match up colors. And uh, to do that, you need to think 3D now because uh, yeah, it's just the way it comes together. It's pretty cool. Awesome. And we were talking before the show, I love how you have taken you know, mechanisms that have been around for a while with set collection and, and tile, uh, tile placement and things like that, but you've turned them on their head and, and made them into this like totally different experience. And we were talking about how, you know, caching guns, one of the best things about it, you, you take a, a little toy gun and you get to point it at your friends, right? And that's part of the gameplay and part of the mechanisms in there. And with this game, you could take a sword and you can point it at your friend and you know, <laughs> maybe quote your favorite Game of Thrones uh, character or whatever you wanted to do. And it's just a very interesting uh, game. And, and so good luck with that, man. And uh we're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to be talking about how to balance design, publishing, work, and life. All these different things that Adam is, is juggling, all these plates that he's keeping spinning up in the air. We're going to talk about how he balances those things, his tips and tricks for prioritizing his time and making sure everything gets done. But Adam, man, really appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?